Welcome to the Impact Masters Commission Bible Study Podcast. Join us as we study the Bible verse by verse. I'm your host, Pastor Josh Hawkins. We're going to have some deep, thoughtful, and hopefully helpful discussions to try and discover together what it means to be the followers of Jesus. We love you, Lord. Amen. Okay, so when we finished chapter 3, which I don't know if we actually did finish chapter 3, but we're going to say we did. That was six weeks ago, probably. Yeah. Because then we kind of took a couple weeks and just talked about whatever for the whole time. Um, we were going through, Paul had, he had launched off on this list of the the things that make someone eligible um, for ministry, like a list of the, the kinds of things, the kinds of people that we would say, you know, yes, they, they are, they, they're a good choice uh, to lead in the church. Um, and now he's going to make another shift and he's going to kind of, he shifts into his, he's winding the letter down. So he's going to summarize a bit and he's going to make some statements just straight out that are uh, just important that he wants Timothy to have to hold on to. Remember all through this Paul's letter, he is empowering Timothy. He is instructing Timothy and he's giving Timothy things that he can use in his leadership of the church at Ephesus. That's the whole point of this letter. Um, and, uh, and so now he's going to go back to that a little bit. So verse one, now the spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the instance, <clears throat> through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed." Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This, this saying is trust, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, 
in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, <clears throat> you will save both yourselves and your hearers. That's the end of the chapter. Okay, lots to go through, y'all. So Paul begins by saying, The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. We don't know what Paul's referring to right there. He might be referring to a scripture in the Old Testament. There are definitely scriptures there that say those kinds of things. He might be referring to a prophetic word that came to the church in the early days. He might be referring to Jesus in Matthew 24, where Jesus said, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Okay, Paul is referring to what we would call... Anybody know what it is called? It is a sign of the end times. It will happen before the before Jesus returns. The great falling away is what we call it. It is a sign that the end is near. With Jesus, where the Apostle Paul in another letter says that Many, the hearts of actually, the hearts of most will grow cold. Is there people that love God, that are following God, that will just stop following God? And we are seeing, there have been wave after wave after wave of people falling away throughout the history of the church. And we are in another wave like that today. Um a fresh wave that is referred to as deconstruction. Anybody familiar with that term? A term is a broad term that is used to cover over a multitude of ideas and thoughts. I think there is some deconstruction which is absolutely necessary, which is needful, which all of us need to go through. I think all of us need to be examining our faith I've always felt like part of my job here in this class is to shake you up a bit, to call you to examine your faith a little more deeply than you have in the past, to think through the ideas that you've attached to Christ and discover whether or not those are actually Jesus ideas or if those are human ideas or if those are America ideas. Because we have lots of ideas living in our brains some of them we have put the stamp of Jesus on, but they are not Jesus' ideas. So for some people, this thing that's being called deconstruction, which I don't really like that word, but for some people that, they, that this thing that's being called deconstruction is about finding the purity of what Jesus has called us to do. That's definitely how it's operated in my life. But for others, it is about throwing off the yoke of Christ and of and of God and saying, I don't want, you don't get to tell me what to do anymore. 
And so they go walking off and completely deconvert. I'm no longer a follower of Jesus. It's one thing if we're just um, renovating our theological house. I think that needs to be happening all the time. I really do. It's another if we are completely blowing it up. There's a lot of people who walk through what we might call deconstruction with nobody around them, not in conversation with God, not in, you know, not keeping their eyes open to the fact that the enemy wants to destroy them and they swallow stuff that they should never swallow. And the Apostle Paul is pointing at that. That was a pattern all the way back 2,000 years ago. This is something that's been happening in the church all along, that people who are doing well in the faith all of a sudden will just get shook up. They'll have a crisis of faith. They'll start thinking a little differently. They'll start drifting away. And Paul is saying, hey, that's only going to get worse the, the closer we get to Jesus' second coming. That's it. So you need to be careful, Timothy. They're going to follow deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Now, can I say this to you? I think we often take this verse and run right to like witchcraft. Right? We run what right to like, see all those people reading them Harry Potter books. Or... You know, those people practicing, those people doing hot yoga. It's the doctrine of demons, right? Goat yoga. Goat yoga. Exactly. Goat yoga. <clears throat> people always run there. I just got a message today from someone I deeply respect, but he was putting it out and he was saying that the only obstacle to revival in America is pornography. Yes. And I was like, well, okay, I will agree that that is an obstacle to revival. But that is not at all our only obstacle. <laughs> and in fact, I would think that's a rather small obstacle, really, to revival in, the, in, in, in America. Um. So I, I will gladly pray with you that God ends the power that God ends the power of pornography in our nation. It is more powerful than it's ever been. There's no question about that. But there's a lot of other really ugly stuff that stands between us and revival, and I don't think I think that's kind of probably low on the totem pole in my opinion. But so devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, we we cannot. This, this phrase has been used by people in the church over and over and over again to label stuff that they don't understand or they don't like. For instance, the Enneagram. How, do you know how many times I've had this verse quoted at me when I start talking about the Enneagram? Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And I'm just like, <sighs> okay. <laughs> We need to know how we can tell the difference between the voice of the Holy Spirit and the voice of deceitful spirits. Don't be fooled. Deceitful spirits are going to really try and sound like the Holy Spirit. They really are. 
They don't want you to know their deceitful spirits. They're not going to walk up and be all like, hey, I'm a deceitful spirit. Why don't you follow me? That's not going to happen. They wouldn't be very deceitful if they did that. No, they're going to come in under the guise of something good, something beautiful. They're going to try and turn you away from Jesus. We need to be on our guard. And this is how we know. What did Paul say at the beginning of this book? The end of our charge is love. love. This is how we know. If those teachings, no matter what they are, no matter who's teaching them, are not leading us to love God more and love people more, then they're possibly doctrines of demons or just useless doctrines. Doctrines that don't help us at all in our walk in faith. That's the test. I know it's, that's, ooh, that's a hard one. No, it's not. It's easy. Does this thing form me to love people more than I did yesterday? Yes or no? If the answer is no, then it's not a Christian doctrine. I was in the midst of the height of what I would call my most recent bout of deconstruction. I, like I said, I don't really like that. But the Lord was inviting me to dig deeper on a couple of points of theology that I hadn't thought about in a while. I'll say it like that. How's that? Is that better? Y'all around? Are you awake? Yeah? Okay. And I began to say, well, Lord, I don't know. You know, this is hard. You know, it's hard to know what is you and what is not. And I heard, I, I heard the Holy Spirit say, the true test of theology is the person it creates. If I look more like Jesus on the other end of this theology, then guess what? That's probably a trustworthy theology. But if I look less like Jesus at the other end of this, that's probably not a good theology. Now, I posted that on Twitter, and I had all these theology nerds come out and be like, no, it's wrong. The truth says the theology is whether it's biblical. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> the problem is, I can think of lots of quote-unquote biblical theologies which would malform me. Theologies that I could point to scriptures and say, this is what the Bible says. For instance, in the Old Testament, we're taught that Moabites are bad. They're idolaters. And that our children should not marry them. But do you know who David's grandmother was? There's a book in the Bible named after her. Anyone? Ruth. Ruth. Do you know who Ruth was? A Moabite. Oh, no. So I could take from Scripture the doctrine Moabite equals bad. 
David would have been in big trouble then. Are you with me? There's lots of ways to take the Bible and make it mean something that doesn't look much like Jesus. And that doesn't form us towards becoming more like Jesus. There's a million ways to do it. It's very easy to do. You know, have you heard? I think I've probably told this stupid story before, but the guy that flopped open his Bible and put his finger down and just, Lord, tell me what to do. And it said, Judas hung himself in the potter's field. And then he's like, oh, that's bad. And he closes it again, opens it, puts his finger down and says, go ye and do likewise. Is that what God was telling him to do? No. How do we know that? Because God wouldn't say that. Much more important, our, th- our understanding of the character and nature of God is more important than, some, than our soteriology, than our, our other theological structures. The most important thing is who, what is God like? And that is what Jesus came to show us. We know what God is like. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. We didn't always know that, but now we do. So any interpretation of Scripture that doesn't look like the character and nature of Christ is a mistaken interpretation. I don't have any problem saying that, even though... I know good friends that would argue with me about that all day long. Let's keep moving. In Paul's next letter, by the way, 2 Timothy, Paul goes into more detail. 2 Timothy 3.1. Understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now, those are some doctrines of demons, my friends. Now, I didn't see yoga in that list. Christians love to get all twisted up about stuff that they don't understand when it's very simple. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Let this be. This is the way I want you to think about theology. Okay? Because this is oftentimes what we do in the church. We put up a wall around the ideas that fit inside our theological world. Here's my wall. Now, if you step over this wall, you're a heretic. I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. I think Jesus is magnetic north. And the closer we get to him, the more true our theology is. And the further we get from him, the more damaging our theology is. Does that make sense? Rather than putting up a boundary and saying, here is here... Can we make allegiance to Christ our most important thing? That's where I'm at. I want to talk for a minute before we move on. Because 
the worst, quote-unquote, doctrines of demons, the ones that get in the deepest, the ones that mess with us the most, are the ones that we cannot see. The ones that sneak in and we cannot realize them. Ones that are so prevalent in our culture that it even taints the gospel for us. We end up turning the gospel to serve these things rather than having the gospel call us away from them. Those things are usually gathered around how we use power, money, and sex. That's usually the center of the stuff. Because our culture wants to tell us how to use power. Our culture wants to tell us how to use money. And our culture wants to tell us what sex should look like. Our culture spends all day, every day telling us about that stuff. And again, these are deceitful spirits. They don't come up and say, let me tell you how to use power. No, it just rewards and makes examples of those who use power in a specific way. Who do we glorify in our culture? Say it out loud. Who do we glorify? I didn't hear you. The world. Well, sure. But what does the world glorify? Who's, well, yeah, but who specifically? Okay. In our culture, think of our culture. Who are the most glorified individuals in our culture? Like sure. Sure. Absolutely, we do. But even in saying that, they have a very different definition of what it means to be you. They're giving you a definition of what it means to be you. <coughs> you be you means you spend money on the clothes that you like. Yeah. Do you see how that's very an cool. admission towards yeah. towards uh, materialism? Mm -hmm. You being you means. That you're material. Yeah. That you're. They have a they have a meaning that that is riding in on you. Be you. It's not. They're not really wanting you to be you. They're wanting you to be what they consider to be your best version of you. Yeah. <clears throat> and those, it's that hidden secret stuff. Okay, it's that hidden secret stuff that tricks us. So often, okay, specifically, let's talk about how we use power. power th because this is a really important conversation in our culture right now. The way that power works. Now, when I'm not talking about electricity. I'm talking about cultural power, okay? Whether it be, well, power takes lots of different forms. In this room right now, I'm wielding power because I'm coming in as you know, a teacher that's been brought in and I'm sitting in front of you and you're all, all of your chairs are pointed at me, okay? So I am wielding power. There's nothing wrong with wielding power if it's done in a Christ-like way. Power is, 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 an, is a thing that we have to deal with. The question is, how are we going to use it? Now, Jesus, this is how Jesus used power. 
He gave it up. Philippians 2. Let us have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who, though having the form of God, did not, he didn't consider it good to exert that power in a controlling way. He took on the form of a servant and died on the cross. He came the one through whom all things were made. I'm, I'm in a verse-by-verse study of John right now with my church's Bible study. Okay, and we just finished the, the, the prologue, John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. Unbelievable. This is, Jesus is the word, the logos. God himself, God of very God, as we say in the creed. Okay, Jesus John says, all things were made through him, not, and, and without him was nothing made that was made. Jesus was absolutely a part of, of the creation of all things, including you and I. But then at the end of John, we see Jesus coming in, taking off his robe, and washing his disciples' feet. The one through whom all things were made comes and washes his disciples' feet and says to them, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And then he goes forward to serve in even more unbelievable capacity. He allows himself to be nailed to the cross. Now, think about every superhero movie you've ever seen. How would the hero have responded to an army coming and nailing him to a cross? How would he have responded? Right? Boom, then we're going to go into slow motion and he's just going to just take them all out with his karate moves, the lightning from his fingertips, right? That's what he's going to do. That's what a hero does. And that's how you use power. You clobber the bad guy, right? But is that what Jesus did? No, it's not. What did Jesus do? Jesus laid down. Oh yeah, he could have. He tells Pilate, you can't do, you couldn't do this to me if I wasn't letting you. He lays down in submission to his father, forgives the ones who are nailing him to the cross. Not only does he let them do it, but he loves them as they do. And they kill him. And this is how Jesus wins. Explain that. Because it is the exact opposite of how the world uses power. It is the exact opposite of how God inhabits power. Jesus was saying, this Jesus is the one who teaches us who God is. On the cross, as Jesus was bleeding his life away for you and for me, he was saying, this is what the Father looks like. Endlessly emptying himself out for you. That's how Christians inhabit power. Okay? Now, how many church situations have I been in where I had a leader, if I was being a little bit, you know, of a jerk, say, honor your elders. Sit yourself down, shut your mouth, and honor your elders. Right? Was he right? Should I have honored my elders and shut up? Yeah, he's right. I should have. 
But was the way he was inhabiting his power in that, was that Christ-like? Does that make sense? And here's the problem. The longer we possess power, the more blind we are to how much power we possess. There's a very big buzzword out there right now, my friends, that I have avoided using until now because I didn't want to trigger anyone. Privilege. It just means power. That's all it means. Depending on what situation you're in, you either have power in that cultural situation or you don't. Okay. When I first moved to Fremont, I was surrounded by people I did not know. They know who I was because I was the only new guy in the room. But I didn't know them. And when I tried to strike up conversations with people, I would get one-word answers. I got totally snubbed. Nobody's... They were exerting cultural power over me because I was the new guy. They had privilege and I didn't. That's all that it is. You've seen it work. You've seen it work in every different kind of situation that you want. And we could talk about how whiteness works. We're not going to talk about that right now, but we could. Because it's just about cultural power. That's what it's all about. The whole thing that people are... And when you have power, especially if you've had it for a long time, especially if you did nothing to earn it, you're pretty blind to it. Pretty blind to it. But it forms the way you respond to people. Power will deceive you. It will minimize the pain of others. It will tell you that your opinion is more important than their humanity. It will make you feel righteous even while you are oppressing and marginalizing someone else. And it will lie to you about how God sees the way you're using power. This is exactly what happened. I know I'm gonna I'm gonna get a little I'm gonna get a little political again. Get ready. Okay? When Europeans got on boats and went across the ocean and started walking all over this new land that they discovered it, calling it their own and enslaving the people, they honestly believed in their core that they were right to do so. Many of them had letters from their religious leaders telling them they had the right to do so. The Pope gave them a letter saying, here you go, you are free to go to take that land and to enslave those people because all of this belongs to God. I'm his regent on earth, therefore I give it to you. There's another politically charged word for what I just described to you. You ever heard the word colonization? The world we live in right now is shaped by these ways of using power that were baptized in Christian tradition, Christian authority structures, Christian verbiage. But they look nothing like the way Jesus inhabited power. You have a question or a thought? Please argue if you have an argument. Well, it's not like it's not an argument, and I I just get a little confused because 
Europeans did. Yep. Like they came and they were horrible. Historically. Like, That's exactly I, like, what happened. Yes, I believe that. So I guess like where I get confused is because like now we all understand that that's not okay. Yeah. But at that time, like, like you said, those people didn't think they were doing anything wrong. Like they genuinely did not know better. And so I guess it's just like, some, I don't, some did and some didn't. To say, to, to think that this way of inhabiting power was the way everybody inhabited power in that time is not correct. There were people standing up in that day and in that hour saying, this is not okay. What we are doing is wrong. Yes, we should go and preach the gospel to these people, but we have no right to enslave them. We have no right to dominate them. And money and power won. As it almost it always does. Yeah, like you and I guess, okay, this is a follow-up question. I don't, I've read the Old Testament, yeah. but there's a lot in the Old Testament that I really get confused by. And one of the things in the Old Testament that really confuses me is there were times that God anointed his people to go massacre other people yeah. to take over that part of land. And so, I like, I'm not saying what white people did to the people that used to live in America was okay. But I understand why religiously they might have thought, well, God has sent people to do this before, so why wouldn't he send us to do it? Yeah. Like, I understand why that would be confusing. Oh, yeah. I get confused by that. Absolutely. Like, I know, like, I believe that God obviously did the just thing, but it is confusing to be like, why did, like, God told the Israelites yeah. that they could go kill all these people? God said that. And so I have a hard time, like, when that happened like Columbus and everything that was obviously so long ago our culture has progressed so much since then I guess it's like I understand why they were confused because even today knowing it, that is obviously not okay I still am a little bit confused by God did send people to do that mm-hmm. so it's confusing those are the exact okay. those are the so exact arguments that those people used to justify what they were doing we are God's chosen people now and we are being told by God to go and do this. Just like Joshua, just like Moses, just like, just like, just like. Yeah, they use those arguments absolutely. So how do we know that that's... I'm not, I'm not saying I think that's true, yeah. but it's like, okay, I feel like that's kind of a valid argument. Yeah. Like, I just get really confused by that. We need to remember the way Jesus treated scriptures like these. You have heard it said... But I say to you. Like at what point was that switch? There wasn't a switch. There wasn't a switch. And we're going to get really in the weeds with some really big ideas that take a whole lot of thought and process. And yeah. And, yeah. I just, every single time that I read through like the Old Testament books, I'm like, the only, I'm so I, I understand completely. Here's, here's what, the only ways for us to go are either we have a different God in the Old Testament than we do in the New. We're not okay with that. No, no, no. Martianism, no. Not okay with that. Okay? <laughs> but that's way one way the church has gone. Oh, yeah, in the past. That it, 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 we've done it, um, but that's not, that's not the case. Okay? 
two, uh, there are things at work in that time and that place that make this more complex than we understand, which is probably the safest route. Okay, I had a, a guy that talks about this specifically, and he says, imagine that I'm walking down a busy street and I look across the busy street that I cannot cross and the traffic is loud and I see my wife over on the other side of the busy street and I see her yelling and screaming and kicking a homeless man. Now, I look across the street and I think, what are you doing? <laughs> Why would you do that? That is a horrible thing to do. He says, but I also know my wife. And I know the only reason she would be compelled to that kind of behavior would be an equally radical purpose behind her behavior that I do not at this point understand. But when I get to actually talk to her about it, I will. Does that make sense? And so when we see God doing things, and there's not very many, honestly, there's not very many places in the scripture where God makes that kind of command. There's like eight or nine places in the Old Testament where God makes the, the harem kind of command, the kill them all, destroy everything kind of command. Um, and we have some thought as to, there, there's some interesting Bible reasons why. One of them has to do with the Nephilim. Uh, it just does. Because every time, every time God makes that command, it, is, it has to do with a people who are descendant from Nephilim. So that may be reason enough. But still I'm going, but those are humans that God loves. Why is this okay? All like, we can I do. I do not believe what happened years and years ago is okay. Like, I do believe that we need to be more aware of, like, even though it's not my responsibility, being aware of the reality of what happened is important. There's nothing, like, I can't change it, but I can live aware of it and be, have a different attitude towards it than I used to. But it's just so confusing because just like, we, so, like we, we just weren't there. We don't know. No, we weren't there. Absolutely right. And that's probably the safest way to think through that. I recently read a book. It's called Cross Vision, which offers a third way of thinking about this that I think is interesting. And I'm going to offer it to you as a, a maybe. It's a little scary. I'm going to be honest with you. It's a little scary. And borders on like it really the way that we think about the Bible might might have to shift a hair okay are you with me all right so here's how this goes what we see God doing all throughout the Old Testament and even up until Jesus himself is inhabiting and meeting humanity where we are to move us forward towards him. What if this is what they heard God say at that time? Because that is 
the only God that they could hear or understand. And that God was willing to inhabit that place, that moment, that way, so that he could lead them out of that kind of behavior. Okay? Um, that he is, like for instance, uh, the, the, let's take a less, a less crazy example than genocide, shall we? Okay? The sacrificial system. We find out later on in the Psalms and in some of the later prophets that God's not really all that interested in the sacrifices that the people of Israel are bringing. Um, but, it, but they are commanded to bring them with Moses. But then in the Psalms and in, in a couple of the prophets, he says things like, uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Things like, don't, don't bring me. And then when Jesus comes, the whole sacrificial system is eliminated from the worship of God. Because Jesus, the substance of which the sacrificial system was a shadow, has come. Therefore, we have no more need of the sacrificial system. And so I would say, based on the way that, the, the way that we walk through this understanding of how we relate to God in the Bible, that God was meeting a people for whom every other nation around them, the only way that they talked to their God was through animal sacrifice. And not just animal sacrifice, but human sacrifice. And God came into, that, into the midst of that situation and met face to face with those, with those expectations. And because he wanted to meet the people, he inhabited those expectations for a time. But he made his first thing by saying, do not sacrifice a human to me. Right? Lambs, goats, fine, not humans. And as the people of God continued to move forward in their understanding of who God was more and more, things, it began to drop away until Jesus came. He establishes a new covenant, which has only one sacrifice and it is his own right in the middle of it. And we no longer need animal sacrifice. Do we know when the New Testament was written? Yeah, we have good ideas. It was all written in the first century. You know, up to the, probably the last book that was written was John, the Gospel of John, and it was written in the 90s. So, like, these people that did this, like, from America, they would have been reading the New Testament? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But see, over and over and over again, the history of the church, the history of God's people, both Israel and the church, has been to read God's word in such a way that it works out for our advantage. Oh, I can go take their lands because I'm God's people now. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's and plus, really I'm telling them about Jesus, so it's okay. It's really hard for me to, like, I don't want to be insensitive to what happened. It's just like, every, like I wouldn't exist if it didn't. None of yeah. us would. Right. So it's really hard to be like, 
Would I take it back if I could? Well, I wouldn't be here. So it, it's hard because it's like everything that but I take know, it. Everything, like it's so hard for me to wrap my mind around like, I'm not saying what happened was right, but we're also so far removed from it. Like, what can we do? The real question is, how are the patterns that were established in that time forming us today? Yeah. That's the real question. We cannot do anything about what happened then. I mean, I'd be willing to think about things like reparations, et cetera, maybe. But it would have to, ooh, boy, it'd be, it'd be a long conversation. A very detailed and nuanced conversation. We can't just, it's not just an off and on switch. This is a, we need to talk through what this really looks like. But the big question is, how does it form who we are today? Because there is a vestige of that cultural power that still exists. And me, in my position, as I am today, with full knowledge of the way things have gone in the past and that I benefited from them, how can I take a Philippians 2 attitude towards the power that I have been given in this time? How do I lay down my power for the sake of others, as Jesus did? That's the only way we can respond. We can't, we can't change what our forefathers did. We have no way of doing that. I'm certain that I had ancestors who owned slaves. I can't change that. I can't. I wish I could, but I can't. But I can inhabit my position of cultural power in this day and in this moment in the most Christ-like way that I can find. Does all of that make sense? Because we're kind of, I know this is deep stuff. And we're totally out of time, so we're not going to finish. Yeah. Let me tell you a story that is in this book that made me cry really hard, okay? There, it's a story about this family. This is a true story about this family who would, um, both mom and dad were psychologists that dealt with childhood trauma. And they were Christians. And they would adopt children who had gone through serious trauma in order to walk them through a healing process as their children. And they adopted this young lady. And the first night that she was in their house, um, they, they put her to bed and they went to bed and then they wake up the next morning and all of the walls of her bedroom were smeared with poop. And they were like, what on earth is going on here? You know, this is nasty, un, not hygienic at all. It's extremely, you know, bad for health, etc. This is not okay. And so they just, they cleaned the wall. You know, they talked to the girl. She couldn't really talk about it. They cleaned the walls, went about their day. Same thing happened the next night and the next night. And... Once this girl, this little girl, she was, I think she was seven. Once she began, she would do this every night and they would clean it every night. And eventually 
they invited her to help them clean it. You know, as a, as a recognition of this is, you know, this needs to be done and you're, you know. And they got to the place where she trusted them enough to talk to them about what was going on. And they said to, this little girl said to them, um, every night when I was younger, my father would come in and molest me. Until one night, I was so afraid that I pooped my pants. And he was so disgusted that he wouldn't touch me. So I started wiping poop on my walls every night before I went to bed so that he wouldn't come at, come after me. This was how she was keeping herself safe. And so what seems really gross and disgusting to us was the smell of safety for her. It was the only way that she felt safe to sleep at night. So then they began, they continued to talk with her. She continued to do this. Eventually they put it down to like, just right here on this part of the wall, just this part of the wall, you know, so it wasn't everywhere. And then at some point she was able to stop doing that. And they said to the guy who wrote this book, they said, if anybody had come into our house and seen that we were allowing her to smear poop on her wall, they would have thought we were the worst parents ever, right? Why would you let her do this? This is disgusting. But they don't understand the brokenness that she was coming from. This was her, this was how, even though it made no sense at all to anybody else, it made sense to her little mind that this is how she was safe. And we had to inhabit that before we could help her out of it. God came to a deeply broken humanity that thought, in order for God to love me, I have to kill something. And so God said, stop killing your children, but I will receive offerings of animals from you because this is how you're expressing love to me. Does that make sense? But God didn't need that wasn't required. God was able to walk them out of it to the point where he himself embodied. He says, you no longer need to sacrifice anything. I will be the sacrifice that enables you to come into my presence. Do you see how loving that is and how beautiful? I get teary every time I think about that story because that is my life. How many times has God met me in my complete immaturity? And I look back years later and I'm like, what on earth? Why on earth did I have, you know, did I think that this is what you wanted for me? And God's like, it's okay. I love you more than I hate that. Does that make sense? That seems like the way that God would lead us. That sounds like Jesus to me. So if they only understood a warrior God who would call them to demolish their neighbors, God would begin by limiting that 
and eventually get to the place where he eliminated it completely. So that in Christ, he could look at Peter and say, put away your sword. The early church was fanatically uh, peace-loving. They would not join the army. They would not take up arms because Jesus took the sword out of the hand of Peter and he has taken the sword out of our hands. That's part of why we got in trouble back then. Because we were expected to fight in the army. We wouldn't do it. Constantine. It changed when the church wedded itself to political power. Political power needed military might, and so we gave up that peace in order to stay friends with empire. And Yeah, and it depends on where you live, too. How wedded is the church in your particular area to the political power of that, of that area? For instance, in the United States, the evangelical church, deeply wedded to a militaristic vision of, to the point where we, like, worship the flag or leave churches that won't put an American flag up on the stage. That's happened to me. I won't put an American flag on my stage. I refuse. And I've had people leave my church because of it. (laughs) Don't let the door hit you on the butt. We worship Jesus here, not America. Anyway, time's up, y'all. If you have questions or whatever, I'll hang out. But we're officially done. Jesus, help us. Help us to to see all the ways the doctrines of demons work their way into our lives. Amen.